there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Could have it. I'm actually struggling with this piece I'm trying to write and it is a very personal story and I couldn't believe it when I saw the the actual um, topic of today's discussion, it's personal feminism and narrative non-fiction. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Feminist Writers Festival, Sydney, 2018. Supported by Create New South Wales and Writing New South Wales and produced by Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is It's Personal. Feminism and narrative non-fiction. This is a recording from the Feminist Writers Festival 2018, Sydney. We'd like to acknowledge that the festival was held on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd also like to thank our partner, the UTS Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. Enjoy the podcast and connect with us on social media or via the FWF website, feministwritersfestival.com. My name is Veronica Sullivan. Uh, I'm on the board of the Feminist Writers Festival. And I'd like to thank you all very much for coming out this morning for this session, It's Personal, Feminism and Narrative Nonfiction. Now, please join me. I'm going to introduce our speakers. On the far end, we have Dr. Anne Summers, AO. Anne has been prominent in Australian media, politics, and as a feminist activist for the past four decades. She's advised governments, been an award-winning journalist, edited magazines in Australia and in New York, led the international environmental organisation Greenpeace, and even had her image on a postage stamp. <laughs> She's the author of eight books, including the classic Damned Whores and God's Police, Ducks on the Pond, The Lost Mother, and The Misogyny Factor. Next to Anne is Fiona Wright. Fiona is a writer, editor, and critic from Sydney. Her book of essays, Small Acts of Disappearance, won the 2016 Keeble Award and the Queensland Literary Award for nonfiction. Her poetry collections are Knuckled, which won the 2012 Dame Mary Gilmore Award and Domestic Interior, and her new essay collection is The World Was Whole. Third along, we have Siv Parker. Siv is an award-winning writer, a social media practitioner and an informed and insightful commentator on Australian life, history and values and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. And nearest to me is Zoya Patel. Zoya is the founding editor of Feminazi and the former editor-in-chief of Lip magazine. She was highly commended in the Scribe Publishing Nonfiction Prize 2015 and was a 2014 recipient of the Anne Edgeworth Young Writers Fellowship. She was named the 2015 ACT Young Woman of the Year. Her debut book, No Country Woman, is a memoir of not belonging and it's out now. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. Thank you all so much. Um, what a delight to be here with these amazing women. And now that we've got that awkward part where we have to listen to our bios being read out, I'm really <laughs> excited to get stuck into this conversation. Um, before I begin, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, and I'd also just like to say, we're at a Feminist Writers Festival. I think it's really important that we note that any move towards gender equality has to be grounded in reconciliation. So, as someone who is young and therefore gets asked repeatedly what on earth I could possibly have written a memoir about, <laughs> um, I think it would be great to start off by asking you guys what drove you to write from a personal perspective. Now, we did talk about this a little bit earlier. So, Siv, I know that partly for you it's about playing witness to, I suppose, the experiences of Indigenous people in Australia to a degree. Would you agree? 
yes. Um, I guess the first thing... When I, when I first started writing, I had a whole heap of ideas about why I was writing, but the longer that you write a memoir when you're writing about yourself, as I was saying this morning, once you start excavating yourself, then what you think at the beginning is not what, in my case anyway, what I think now. So um, I've been doing this for about five years. About halfway into it, I realised that um, saying that I, I'm, I don't represent all Aboriginal people, this is my perspective, and, and sort of trying to ground it in myself, actually, I thought, I don't need to say that anymore. You know, um, because the whole book is from my perspective. So I believe that once you put writing out there, you've got no control over what someone's going to think about it anyway. So there's so many things that I just wasn't going to, um, I guess, um, cloud my writing with, like with all of these explanations and disclaimers. And, you know, I thought like I could, you know, have half of the book saying what I'm not. Um, because I was worried about what perceptions were. So I thought, how you demonstrate that you're not worried about what perceptions are is don't worry about them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and Anne, this is not your first memoir, um, but why this book and why at this time for you? I guess what I wanted to do was to... This story starts... Um, this book starts with me age 30, and so it covers um, my life since then. I wanted to tell the story of basically of Australia. Um, so it's, I see it as a social history and a, st a story of an epoch as much as a, st a story of me. Uh, I'm a character in the book rather than necessarily the, the, the key, the centre of it in, some, in many parts. I guess that the driving theme of it was I've been fortunate enough to have been born at the cusp of a moment when the world changed for women in a way. And we had opportunities that my mother certainly didn't have and certainly not my grandmother and women going back. I was born at a time when life seemed to have closed in on me, but we, we had access to education, which changed everything. Uh, women were starting to go into the workforce and gradually women started to, you know, do all sorts of things. But when I was a teenager, the only women I saw around me and, and whose lives I could model myself on were my mother, who was what used to be called a housewife, had six children, and her, and her, two, her three sisters, two of whom were married, uh, sorry, one of whom was married like her, the other one was a nun and the third one was on the shelf, <laughs> which meant she was a spinster. She was 30 and unmarried and that was a social tragedy in those days. Uh, she, of course, I thought was the most interesting of all of them because she yeah. had money and independence. I was going to say I love being on the shelf. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I just wanted to be able to tell the story of how a girl who grew up with that was her kind of only horizon um, how she became the woman I am today. And it's a long story. It takes, you know, it's 40-odd years. And I've been very fortunate to have, been, have, have had, been offered lots and lots of opportunities in places like the media, in politics, in Greenpeace, in New York, in Canberra, whatever. And so I wanted that story to be one of, if you like, what's possible for all of us. You know, wherever we start and wherever we find ourselves and wherever we move to, um, we are in charge of our own lives and we have to make that life as good as it can be for us. So that's really my driving force in the story. I think that's fantastic. And I really want to come back to that kind of feminist manifesto aspect of putting those words on, on the page. But Fiona, this is your second book of personal essays. What keeps you coming back? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I think I actually intended the second book. I mean, it is much broader 
than than my first my first collection. Um, I I write personal essays um, to deal with that kind of instability, that sense of you, that the way that you change what you think and you change who you are as you move. It's why I like essays as a form. I think they give you um, more space to think things through and and to have those thoughts and issues develop across time. Um, so this, yeah, the second book, I think, is very much about home and belonging. Um, but it took me a long time to realise that one of the reasons I was so interested in that was because um, my sense of my sense of home and my sense of belonging had been disrupted by my illness. Um, and I am interested in writing about and continuing to write about illness, I suppose, um, because I don't, I had, I don't see that many stories about it around yet. I think that's starting to change. Um, I especially don't, and I think we're starting to see more stories about mental illness in particular, but st- we're still not seeing as many stories about the, the very heavily stigmatized mental illnesses like anorexia, um, you know, and, and um, psychoses and, and things that are a little less yeah, there's been a lot of destigmatizing work done around anxiety and depression, I think, and, and some of the others are still lagging behind. Um, and if you live with these conditions, they affect you every single day. And I really wanted to get a get a sense across of, of what that's like. I think that's really fascinating also in the context of this essay collection being about place and home and something that really struck me reading it was a lot of that is actually not about physical places so much as it is about the body. And I think that's something that runs through all of our work. You know, my book is about going through the world in a brown body. I think your book is very much about going through the world in a black body. And and we spoke earlier about how so much of your book is actually about the way that gender plays a role in all of those experiences that you unpack. I was saying to Anne earlier that if you read the book without gender, her experience and trajectory could be very similar to, you know, a male journalist at the time, except that gender was always a thing that kept coming up and disrupting that. Do you feel like that's a, a kind of core aspect of writing personal narrative is inhabiting the place with your body, Siv? Well, it's interesting, yeah, you say like in a black body, um, I mean, I'm obviously black, um, but, and I've got a, my mother was the eldest of 18 children, so there's a very big black family. Um, but I never... Your grandmother must have been a formidable woman. Um, was, I mean... Her story was that she couldn't read and write. She um, was on Sherberg when she was a child. She was she never even got that education as a domestic, as a 12-year-old, um, because there was a lot of um, dislocation. And then she started having children and she was, you know, she died before she was 50. Um, so, and she couldn't read and write that whole time. So I, I, I do, um, writing to me is really important for lots of reasons, including that one. But for a long time, I didn't really think, that, think about being black, but it was in the course of writing this lot, you know, because my work is um, my memoir, what I've done is I've um, anchored it, it's 50 years, starts from 1967 to 2017, um, because the 1967 referendum was significant for me, even though I was only a baby, well, I was only sort of a toddler, didn't quite realise that, but um, there's been one kind of Royal Commission or inquiry or, you know, there's been a whole heap of events over the last 50 years that has impacted on me, um, including up to um, last year at uh, Uluru, I was at the... um, 
convention where they um, developed the statement of the heart. So I've framed it around those 50 years, but for you know, most of my life I haven't really thought about being black, but when you write your stories, you realise that things that you were denied or the way that you were treated, I can't help but thinking it's because I was black. Um, but at the time when you're living through it, like I still had, I was very optimistic. I still did all the things that I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't really. Um, it, it held me back in ways, um, not because I, I was worried that um, it would, um, you know, define my life. But it was people around me, or the, and it was constantly this thing: oh, you want to do it the black way, or you want to be part of the black group, or you'll. And to that kind of um, corralling of me, or not? Totally. Yeah. The lack of autonomy that's given when somebody is placing that emphasis on you. I think that's really interesting that you say that you didn't see yourself as necessarily inhabiting that place in society, but that wasn't a choice that was afforded to you. Other people were putting you, corralling you in that way. Yeah. And because, like, you know, I, I adapt to the places that I'm at. If I'm home, obviously we speak differently, we act differently. It's, but that's like anyone. I'm sure we're all different <laughs> when we go home. You know, so strip off and, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just thought that you know, sort of being part of a society is you just get along with people. So that was my approach, and I didn't really mind, you know, what their background was. But yeah, it, now I can see that, um, yeah, people were looking at me, um, and I couldn't see because I'm on the inside. Yeah, and I think that sense of society placing the onus on an aspect of your identity. Um, that you don't have control over is something that kind of runs as a theme throughout our work and is often a, a large theme in narrative nonfiction. And you were saying earlier that for you, Anne in the book is almost like a character. It's not really about you so much as it is about using your experience to share that context and that historical moment that you were part of um, throughout the period of time from when you were 30 to, to now. Why do you, why did you want to write in that way, not just straight autobiography, but actually putting that political context and critical lens in? Well, I just think that that's who I am. I mean, you can't, if, if, if I'm going to be, um, if, I'm, if I'm going to write my story and I'm going to resituate myself in the history of, of our era and I'm going to <clears throat> talk about key events of which I was either part of or observing um, and to not, to sort of to, to, to ignore certain things about me, I in fact I'm female and that has sometimes, not always, but as Julie Gillard said the night she was kicked out, you know, gender matters, sometimes it matters a lot, sometimes it doesn't matter much at all, but it's always there. Yeah. And as if I can tell you two quick stories to illustrate this, when I was in the Canberra Press Gallery in, um, <clears throat> I started there in 1979 and I was the political correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, so big... I know. I was oh, yeah. that I, it's a fountain, yeah. <laughs> um, and I was uh, you know, getting to to learn the job and and trying to meet all the ministers and the bureaucrats and everybody to to be able to learn about policy and to write about it. And one uh, one of the cabinet ministers said to me, "Look, if you want to come out of my apartment on Sunday, we can have a bit of a you know extended chat about some of the portfolio issues." That's great. So I went round to his apartment and I noticed, you know, the lights were low, the bottle of wine was open and he wasn't quite wearing a smoking jacket but it might as well have been. And so I kind of didn't stay very long. Well, I just thought, look, if, if Laurie Oakes or Paul Kelly or, you know, any of the guys from the gallery had gone round for a chat with the Cabinet Minister, it wouldn't have been like that. So it was no big deal. I mean, he didn't, you know, hack me or anything like that. But it was just... Still gross. It was... Different. And the other story I wanted to tell was, you know, at the same time when I was in the press, Canberra Press Gallery and I, some of you here may be old enough to remember this, that 
I got into this huge uh, shit fight with Malcolm Fraser, who was the Prime Minister, uh, because he had denied me a seat on his plane to go around the world. He was doing some big overs I can see some people nodding who remember it. Um, he was going on a big trip, you know, prime ministerial trip to, to Washington and London and Bonn and everything. And the Russians had just invaded Afghanistan and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And so I was having this big fight with him and I was supported by my paper and um, Fraser said, well, Summers can't, can't go on the plane. So my boss, who was Max Walsh of the Finnerview, said, okay, uh, she's going to go around commercial. So we'll, and all, the, all, the, all the airlines are offering me free, ta- free tickets. And it was a major news story. So I'm you know, every day giving interviews, talking about what it's like to be having this fight with the Prime Minister, buying my ticket, trying to finish my column, going to get on the plane, you know, so make sure I arrive in Washington before they do so I can be on the tarmac saying hi. <laughs> In those days, you could do that. You could get on the tarmac. So I would always be there first and, and really in their face. Um, so this is all great. But the only thing is that I discovered just before I left that I was pregnant and didn't want to be. And so this was a, a really kind of – I had to do all this stuff with this additional factor in my life that only a woman would have to deal with. Um, and morning sickness and feeling shitty – and wanting to, knowing I wasn't going to have proceed with this pregnancy, but you know, wondering how in the hell I could get through the t- ten days or two weeks of the trip. So, and I wrote that into the story. And some people have said, "Well, did we need to know that?" Uh, yes, we did. We did. I think that really. Oh, sorry, if you ended. Oh, I just wanted to say that it's officially one of my life goals to get into a fight with the prime minister. <laughs> There's plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is one of the the crucial. Um, issues when we talk about women's personal writing is that idea that as soon as it's a distinctly female experience, it's somehow too trivial to comment on or we're adding it in for some biased reason that isn't relevant to everyone else. And it comes to that dichotomy of, you know, female, emotional, male, rational. Um, Fiona, I'm interested in how you tackle this because you are writing about mental illness and mental health as well, which are also two areas which people often trivialise and and don't give the kind of respect and worth that it requires. How do you balance that when you are writing from a personal experience, but you're clearly making a point about a much broader cultural issue? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, the... I'm going, to, I'm going to get to this in a sort of roundabout way. I really struggled with the emotional, rational thing. It's, it's, um, it's one of the things that very often under, underpins uh, an eating disorder, that, um, that the emotional life feels too much, too messy, um, too extreme, so you try and rationalise everything um, and, and kind of act according to rules um and and systems and so it's very much a kind of denying of everything that's emotional and bodily in the place of everything that's rational and brainy um so a really big thing for me in getting in starting to get better or or getting better you know I I use better in the sense of improved rather than better in the sense of well um it's tricky there needs to be two different words um so one of the things that really I had to address was this kind of disdain for the emotional um, that I'd, I'd picked up, I was going to say somewhere, but I'd picked up from society, let's face it, um, <laughs> oh, um, and kind of find a way to appreciate, live with, understand the logic of emotions that you know, isn't necessarily rational, but, you know, they, they, they exist for a reason and they're telling you things and they're important. Um, 
you know, and I guess the the reason why I kind of bring together, I'm interested in how personal stories resonate in the world because, you know, I think, I because I firmly believe that the personal is political. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I have this fight all the time with one of my friends who's a scientist and a, and a statistician. And he's always like, I hate that phrase, the person's political, because it's just not. And I kind of gave away the punchline there because, you know, he, he um, he's a man, he's a straight white man, he's a straight white, cisgendered, um, able-bodied man. And I'm like, well, congratulations, your personal isn't political. Um, right? But, yeah. but for the rest of us, it is. We, we do carry these things with us that affect the way we are in the world and the experiences that we have and the way the world reacts to us. Um, and I think the more that we talk about those um, and connect the experiences that we have in common, the, the more likely things are to change, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny that you say that about your straight white man friend um, because in writing my book, which is about race, um, I was really struck by how whenever white journalists were asking me questions or even white readers sending me comments, they'd often be like, someone mentioned navel gazing, someone else referenced angst. There was a lot of like, oh, you have such a like inward focused gaze or something. And I was like, I'm sure it makes you feel better to individualize this issue and claim that the racism that I've experienced is just a case of me lacking confidence or, you know, me dwelling on my identity. But I think it's really telling that all of the people of color who've read the book and have contacted me have said, that's the first time I've seen my experiences reflected in something that I've read or thank you so much for writing that. That really resonated. And I, I mean, think that I'm, is a yeah. trivialization of, um, of difference. And it's actually a really political act to write from the personal experience when you are writing about a, a marginalized or a non-mainstream issue in mm. that way. Mm. And I, I think it's sort of the reason that I wrote the first book in the first place was, so my, my illness started with a, a physical condition. I've, I've got a very rare stomach disorder um, that's long-winded and boring, um, but it makes me throw up all the time, well not all the time, but a lot without wanting to Um, and it took a long time to get diagnosed. Um, I lost a lot of weight in the process and there are changes in your brain that happen when you're malnourished and it turned out I had all the personality traits that make a person vulnerable to disordered eating in the first place so you know I just got lucky on all fronts Um, but because I had this physical thing that started before anything else and that is real and you know um, it's not really measurable but um, I kind of pinned everything that was happening in the way that I was eating and the way that I was existing on the purely, the purely physical. This is all I'm doing is managing my condition the same way a celiac and half the population these days doesn't eat bread um, or, you know, a diabetic controls their sugar intake, that that sort of thinking. Um, and that was because all of the stories that I'd seen and read about eating disorders and anorexia in particular were about silly, selfish teenagers um, just going through a phase um, who just wanted to be pretty or just wanted to be thin. And I was like, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. And then when I actually got into treatment and started meeting other people, I was like, oh, none of these people are like that either. And actually, I'm exactly like them. Um, So I wanted to put out a narrative that was accurate um, and that might stop people from falling into that same trap that I did. Um, yeah. You know, it, and I completely forgot my point. I think <laughs> what, you were, what you were getting to was this kind of false dichotomy we have with objectivity as being somehow more 
true and authentic, like this idea that a medical illness that can be easily um, traced back to a physical condition is mm. easier for people to understand than a or, mental illness. Or people, I think I was thinking about people of colour being in touch and being like, these are my experiences, I understand this entirely. Um, I've, I've, you know, because I've had a bit of that too. Yeah. They're sort of like, we've never seen this written about in a way that makes sense before. And I think those false narratives are, that exist around these things written from the outside or, or whatever can be can be really damaging. And I think that touches on the activist element of personal writing as well. I think certainly the four of us seem quite united with a sense of social justice, which is part of what we're trying to communicate. And you've written a lot from an activist perspective in lots of different ways. How does this memoir feed into your history of feminist activism? How does it kind of play a role? One of the themes um, of my book is that I... Is this working? Yeah. Is that I um, talk about the sort of constant tension in my life, which I think I've always experienced and still do, uh, between wanting to be an activist and always being drawn to activism because I have this strong sense of, you know, not just of social justice but of you know, wanting to fix things that I think are wrong mm. and I can't just see something that I think is wrong and walk past. So I have this very strong need to, to, to be involved and engaged and to try and do what I can to change things. But against that I also have this great desire to be an observer and a chronicler and to write about things. Mm. And the two things are really kind of at odds usually. I and mean, occasionally I've been able to find a role where I could do both. But, yeah. you know, if you're a journalist, um, you need to be um, objective. You need to be non... If you're a political journalist, you need to be non-partisan. You know, you have to sort of write... In, in those days anyway, I think all this is a bit changing a bit. But, uh, yeah, journalism we millennials are going down everything. some very strange paths and there's a lot of... Um, stuff that I wouldn't call journalism that passes as such. Uh, but in my experience anyway, that I needed to, to find some reconciliation between the, activ the activist in me and the observer in me. And so mm. I've walked both sides of the streets. You know, I've been a journalist, I've been a bureaucrat, I've been a, you know, a head of Greenpeace, I've been a you know, femocrat, I've been all these different things. Mm. And uh, every time when, when I'm sitting there in the bureaucracy thinking, oh, God, I wish I was out there you know, on the trenches and I could do much more... And meanwhile, I'm actually ch changing childcare in the bureaucracy. So, yeah. you know, it's, it, it is another form of activism, but it's different, you know, different, different framework and everything. Can I, can I ask a question, Anne? Um, <laughs> sorry, I was good, like, sorry, I Zoya, I'm just going to butt in for a second. Um, I, I thought there was something really interesting and political too about the fact of starting a memoir at, at 30 and starting a coming-of-age story at 30 and that this sort of sense that comes through the book a lot and, and especially towards the end where you're like, this is still a work in progress, this is still happening, when does one, like, this, this whole coming-of-age thing up. is. Yeah, yeah, I, and I found that really powerful and useful. That's not a question. Oh, <laughs> I'll take that as a comment. I'll take that as a comment. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's like, yeah. No, I'm, I'm happy for mutual fangirling on this panel at any point. Um, I did want to come to you, Siv, about that idea of being both an observer and a participant. So we were talking earlier about the Northern Territory intervention and you being up there as a public servant, mm -hmm. but obviously you're directly affected by a lot of these issues. Is this like a joke? Is this some kind of... Are we being punked yeah. right now? Because I feel like that's happening a lot. Mm. Um, but yeah, I wondered if you could tell us a bit of that story because it's really interesting trying to inhabit the position of both the person who's recording and telling the story but the person who's also deeply personally affected by those those changes and political acts that are being you know done to a community, which was very much how the intervention felt, something that was being done to a community, not necessarily with the buy-in of that community. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, this... 
the purpose of my writing now is definitely to be a chronicler um, of what I've seen and to, to write it as honestly as I can. Um, and because at this stage, the only person I'm challenging is myself. If, you know, as I said, I can't control how people will respond to it, but it has to be something that I can live with. So the thing about the, the Northern Territory intervention, why I felt the need you know, to write extensively about it, was I just happened to be there. I was, um, I'd moved back to the Northern Territory. I've lived everywhere, but, and I particularly like the Northern Territory, so I'd moved back there and just had a um, public service job. I was a ministerial officer. It was all lovely in a nice office. Listened to um, ABC Classic FM all day. Um, and then they announced... How I imagine it. Yeah, and this was back in the day when um, if you, you saw big news on the television. So we were told, go into the tea room. There's going to be an announcement. Um, and so we went in. It was the Prime Minister and Mel Brough, and they announced this thing called the Intervention into the Territory. Um, there was a whole heap of measures that went with it. it and there was just so much... Um, to hear it all in one go. But the thing that we grasped on is that, because we were health department, so there was going to be mandatory health checks of Aboriginal children. They estimated there was about 25,000 children. So, um, you know, the NT manager and all the rest of the staff looked at me like, what did you know about this? And I said, I didn't know anything. Mm. But the thing about it was, you know, no one knew about it. The first thing was the AMA had to come out very quickly and say, we don't do... um, mandatory health checks. That's not what we do in Australia. Um, That's actually quite invasive. So that's when they moved to this idea about we could get um, Defence Force medic teams. And as I said in a little story I tell often, um, because the perception of the intervention is that this SWAT team came in and with all of their, you know... Personnel. Yeah, all of that. And they descended on a community. It is true we went in in Hercules bombers, but that was purely logistics. And it was the worst kind of plane that you could have in an Aboriginal community because they don't have a sealed strip. So when you land, the entire community is engulfed in dust. And it takes a good hour for it to... So we just walk out of the gloom. But the thing about the, um, the, the personnel that I was with, they were volunteers across the Defence Force. So they were Army, Navy, Air Force, um, Army Reservists, um, vol- and they all volunteered to do it. So because they're Defence Force, they can fall into, you know, into a team and do things, but they weren't actually there as any kind of firepower. They, as I said, in the end, all they were doing, because we weren't allowed to drink the local water, most Aboriginal communities have very poor water supplies. So what these blokes did was every hour they had to give me a, a bottle of chilled water. Um, so it was basically a team of men that followed me around and gave me water. Um, <laughs> And that's what, the, and they played football with the kids. They were quite bored because there wasn't anything to shoot at. Um, and um, <laughs> the other, the other one, of the misconceptions though, is that there were tanks there. And as I said, you don't know the territory very well if you think we travelled around in tanks, mm. because you know it's, these are long distances. You're not going to go in a tank. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it gives this idea. I mean, it certainly was a terrible idea. You know, if you'd really thought it out, you would have done it completely different. Yeah. You would have engaged that. Aboriginal Health Services and said, what are your needs? Yeah. Um, as it was, the, um, the, the, um, the burden of um, uh, tea, you know, um, was it, um, dental issues, skin conditions, hearing conditions, um, babies not being va- vaccinated, they, those were the critical areas. Um, if you'd asked the Aboriginal Health Services, they would have said that. Yeah, what a novel idea, actually consulting with the community. Yeah, so, so but it just, I just happened to be there, which is why I wrote about it. But also because I thought, um, you know, one of the issues um, that is um, sort of certainly present in my time is that Aboriginal people 
people not really consulted about our lives. Mm. But just um, touching on when you talk about being a chronicler, um, uh, just in the last sort of little while, because um, I was still sort of working and sort of getting to the point where you think, I think I've actually finished now. And then um, I received some news last year, and I won't go into details because there were, um, but. Um, it, it did get me thinking, what can I actually write about? So years ago, I just happened to be in a relationship where it wasn't a very successful relationship and I had decided this isn't working out. Um, and um, uh, so he, he formed this idea of uh, murder-suicide. Yes, so I won't go into that details. A, that took a real turn. That yes. wasn't what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> yeah, and at the time, because I, I had a full-time job, I had a full-time uni load, I had a small child that I was trying to, you know, get into school and we were going to the theatre and I, he, was t- he was going to karate classes, teaching him how to swim. Um, my mother was in palliative care, we were organising a funeral and then I've got this bloke on the side and so I thought, well, you're just a pest. <laughs> so, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> That's so, one word for it. Yeah, well, <laughs> and that's how... It f- <laughs> anyway, I mean, the thing is, it was... Um, I was friends with his sister and I was friends with the whole family and they were all th- thought it was a great relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best he'd had. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, I wasn't into it. So, um, and as, as you know, kind of when you decide it's over, that is yeah. the, that's the most dangerous time. Yeah. Um, time, but I kind of was like, look, I just don't have time for this, um, which is re- literally how it was because I think when you're in your sort of late 20s, you know, and you've got so much going on, there's only so much, you know, and my, yeah. my priorities were, you know, had nothing to do with him, but at the same time, I didn't, you know, they said, oh, look, he's a bit fragile, mm. and so I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't, I just thought it was the nicest thing to say, look, this isn't working out, yeah. especially after the second time. Um, I won't go into details about it, but it was like, seriously? Um, you know, the second time? Like, the first time I was like, what happened? Anyway, but, the, but um, then I found out that he had um, suicided. Mm. And I found this out just before Christmas last year. So then I had to go through this whole heap of processing because I thought I hadn't actually even anticipated including that story at all yeah. in my work because I thought it was... You know, my mother dying was like, at that time, that was the most significant thing in my yeah. life. Um, and then, and I also thought, like, how do I approach someone else's mental illness? Yeah. Maybe my own, who knows? Like, you know, at the time, because I'm not trivialising mental illness, but the, you know, the, the sort of having your mother die, um, yeah. in my case, anyway, was a really significant event. Yeah. It just eclipsed everything. So I thought, really, I'm trying to grapple with how to talk about that period in my life. Mm. And being in this relationship just seemed, it didn't seem to fit within yeah. that narrative. Whereas now I'm thinking, well, um, you know, because of the violence in Aboriginal communities, it's definitely a thing. Yeah. And also, like, because my experience of it, it wasn't this thing where it was violent and, you know, you were calling the police. He wasn't physically violent at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was um, definitely I was in peril and it would have been devastating for my family. But, um, mm. but the... And just on the end note, just to finish it, but, uh, you know, having his, you know, his family saying, oh, you know, you didn't come to his funeral. I said, well, he tried to kill me twice. Yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, twice, yeah, it was twice. <laughs> and I thought... So I thought that's actually what I was looking for is yeah. because this, this acceptance mm-hmm. that, you know, some relationships don't work out, but that's a big... 
Totally. And I think that's a perfect perfect example of a deeply personal experience actually being representative of a much bigger issue. Um, I do think you've touched on one of the key kind of ethical questions of writing memoir, which is how do you tell other people's stories and Mm -hmm. how do you include those in your work? And you have a lot of big names in your memoir. There are a lot of people who you're like, oh, and got to hang out with all these people. They're like household names. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suppose you've also got the most experience in terms of telling political stories that inevitably touch on actual people's lives. How have you grappled with that in your career to date? How do you kind of marry that tension of, you know, the right for people to own their story, but also the necessity for some stories to be told? Um, you know, that's, that's the core of what, what, of what memoir is about in many ways. Um, certainly in my first book, Ducks on the Pond, uh, where I tell the story of my family and my upbringing and my, my childhood, was, it wasn't physically violent, but it was extremely hostile environment I grew up in. And my father was, you know, a very bad drunk and uh, our lives were, you know, pretty, pretty terrible. I left home the second I was legally able to. Um, my mother was just devastated by that book and by telling that story. And even though I'd interviewed her about it, she knew I was writing it, but somehow she just didn't, didn't kind of register. And when I sent her the, the page proofs and I sent to her and all my brothers the page proofs and, and most of the brothers thought it was great and they said, thank God, you know, this story should be out there. She just said she couldn't live with it. There's no way she could live with it. And it was very, very tough. And, I mean, she eventually came round after lots and lots of people kind of worked on her. Not me, but, you know, she went to all the priests and the nuns and they said, she said, isn't this terrible? And they said, no, actually, it's not. And that kind of was quite confronting for her. And eventually she realised that... Or she, she came up with this sort of trope of saying, well, you know, writers have to do this, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, writers have to do this. And it was kind of my psychosis or something that I had to tell this story that... Um, and I had thought, you know, this is an extremely common Australian story. We are not the only Irish Catholic family whose father came back from the war, a total alcoholic, and, you know, made, made, the, made the lives of his family hell. And one of the things I've done in the, this new book, uh, Unfettered and Alive, is to have a little bit of a side journey looking at my father's father and mm. what the First World War did to that men of that generation and how my father's upbringing was a very violent one too and mm. how actually the violence in our family has reduced and got better. Uh, It was shocking for my father and his father, you know, beat up his brother and broke his arm, broke his jaw and, you know, the Adelaide Hospital Mm -hmm. refused to believe that a father could have done this to his... and what he did to my grandmother was... was. So one of the the stories I tell is how, you know, when he died, when this grandfather of mine died, his wife, my nana, and his two sons, my father and his brother, Mm -hmm. they bought him a hole in the ground and that was it. Mm. Hole in the ground at the West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide. No name tag, no headstone, no cross, no name, nothing. And it wasn't until, you know, he was there for 70 years before my brothers and I decided that we would um, reclaim him. And so there's a section in my book about how we uh, decided to give him a headstone. Yeah. And how we had we decided we would confront this issue of, I know this, I'm not answering your question, but I'm telling another story, which I hope is okay. Of course it's okay. It's answer the question later. Um, so we decided, um, partly because um, I'd written another book called The Lost Mother where I touched on this story and a woman in her 80s had got in touch with me and, and said, look, she was the, the daughter of a World War One veteran and she had gone to France and seen all the graves of all the, 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 the unmarked graves of, of, of men who died there. And she said, you have a chance to reclaim your grandfather and you should. So I told my brothers and my cousin, the daughter of the other brother. And then Rosie Batty, 
you know, happened. And Rosie Batty made, made that incredible speech, you know, after her son was, was murdered. And she said that families have to start talking about violence. Yeah. And so we decided this would be our kind of contribution to that thing. Mm. So we, we, we gave my, my grandfather a headstone. We decided that we didn't forgive him uh, in any way for his behaviour, but we were willing to acknowledge him and bring him into our family. And so we, we contacted the War Graves Commission and we got permission to use the army insignia on the, on the headstone. Mm-hmm. And we had to thought long and hard about what we we're going to put on it. And we thought, well, look, you know, his wife and his sons didn't want to bury him and didn't want their na- names on his headstone. So we didn't feel we could do that. So we just put his name, his dates, his war service and said, you know, erected by his um, grandchildren and we just put our names yeah. on it and that was it. Mm. But the really um, chilling thing, as I write in the book, is when we had this little ceremony in, in uh, West Terrace Cemetery in Adelaide in uh, late 2014... And it's a really kind of ratty part of the cemetery. It's the Catholic part of the cemetery. It's a bad part. Um, (laughs) And it's, um, you know, when we first found the grave, it had a tree growing through it. Um, So whenever we've tidied it up a bit, put this headstone there. But as we we kind of finished the cemetery, I kind of looked around and I just couldn't believe there was row after row after row of unmarked graves. Mm. So this is common. I feel like that is actually a really great example of how your experience is telling another story but it's fascinating to me that as a woman you're basically your memoir has to take part part of its time talking about toxic masculinity like what you're talking about is gender norms that reinforce this idea of masculinity in a particular way in a violent way um I think what you were talking about earlier as well about your family's reaction to your first memoir um touches on something that Fiona and I were talking about earlier as well which is this idea that it's not just telling our family's stories that seem so confronting to them, but it's also our families suddenly getting this insight into our own mental kind of dialogue that we have with ourselves. And I know that my family were really surprised by a lot that I was grappling with, but it also for the first time opened up these conversations about our shared experiences of racism that we just never talked about. And Fiona, you were saying that your mother found it quite confronting to have to relive the pain that you were in in some of your essays. Yeah, and and I think that's I think that's hard for anybody, right? There there are parts of yourselves that you don't share on a day to day basis, but then you write about them. Um, you're like, hey, surprise, <laughs> um, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I think it is, you know, the, the people in your lives who know you as a person, then getting to know you as a character as well is is an it, it, incredibly difficult and confronting thing for them a lot of the time and challenging. Um, I like what you said about it opening up conversations with your family though too because I think that certainly happened with with small acts um, that there were some conversations that my family was suddenly able to have yeah. in a way that you know, I, you know I always make this joke about the skinniest elephant in the room um, which is a terrible joke but you know <laughs> uh, I'm gonna roll with it. Um, you know, so, and, and it was subtle. They were, they were just small conversations that we'd have or, or small interactions like around the dinner table, for example, that would just be changed yeah. a little bit. Um, and, and it did, and kinder and well, kinder is not the right word because they were always kind, but just a little bit more attuned to yeah. what, what I was going through and what I needed. Um, and that's been a really, a really wonderful thing. Yeah, I mm. think it also touches on the idea of permission 
which is yeah. who do you seek permission from when you're writing a personal story? I like to tell everyone that whilst I did get it in writing from my family that they were okay with me writing a book, I uh, didn't actually share it with them until it was printed, um, which I always thought was a really logical decision, but most people are kind of aghast by this when I tell them. And it's because for me, I wanted to make it really clear that it was my book from my perspective. And whilst they're in it, I'm not trying to speak on their behalf because, you know, the key thing for me has always been the cultural conflict that exists, not with me in mainstream Australia, but with me and my family and the huge gap that exists between my parents and myself, which is why it's fascinating to me that so many people have said it reads like a love letter to your family. And it totally is. I just didn't realise that's what I was writing at the time. But Siv, you were talking earlier about this huge pressure to get permission from the community when you're writing. And I think that's really interesting because, again, it presents this idea of one Aboriginal community. Like there's some core group that you can go to and be like, just by the way, I'm going to write about these issues and someone can give you you know, an arbitrary tick of approval. How are you kind of navigating that in writing this book? Because you're still deep in the process of actually writing as well. Um, I mean, it's all but there. But in writing in general, um, I don't ask permission from anybody. Um, I, I think, and this is part of the premise of my work, is that when we talk about Aboriginal Australia, there's, so, there's not much work out there. Um, so um, the ideas that stick... They stick hard. So one of them is about the concept of an Aboriginal community. Um, now, they certainly exist. Like, you've got places where people and they associate themselves and they're connected there. And But the idea of an Aboriginal community, um, uh, I, it is this mythical place um, where there is this council of people who are able to make decisions and that does not exist. I mean, when you actually think about it, how would it? Yeah. Um, it and But it's it was certainly a thing um, some, you know, decades ago, generations ago. Um, but now, because we're dispersed, and I don't know what the latest um, figure is, but, you know, maybe what, over 70% of Aboriginal people no longer have Aboriginal partners. Um, so, you know, if the community is every, you know, they're, who they've married in with and all of their family, the Aboriginal community has changed considerably because yeah. it's pretty much Australia now. Yeah. Um, so um, the idea about having to ask permission, that's all about um, what can we say that is either going to strengthen our cause or going to damage it. Yeah. And the idea is about what um, what is dangerous for us. That's what I am interested in because um, my I can. It's pretty much the same thing. It was you know that the outside, you know, people who are not um, of this kind of Aboriginal that doesn't quite exist anymore. But um, you know, there's dangers out there if we talk too much about what you know us. So, but really, what it got down to is there's no other way to avoid it. It was the men. Um, because um, when you talk about the political, it's mainly men who kind of... They're sort of dealing with these big picture issues and making these decisions. And my um, view is what I could see, um, and I, as I said, it's over a 50-year period, is that um, in that equation, the women are the ones that suffer and the children aren't even factored in at all. So my what I've been saying for the last few years is if we're pushing these positions, the women's status is not going to... Um, be elevated, we're going to continue to be held down and um, you are sacrificing other people's children yeah. because, you know, if we all stick to this this plan. So when I say we, I mean, these are the kind of general discussions that go on. 
we're all different, of course, but it's pretty obvious that there is a dominant narrative and there's a prevailing point of view. So my approach is um, I'm interested in the status of women. Yep. Um, I don't know whether it's because I come from a matrilineal society, if it's just a coincidence. Matrilineal, as in we're not the leaders, because the leaders, that concept doesn't really exist anyway um, in our um, uh, sort of life. But it was because... Um, you know, if you're talking about the, the big picture and these, the good stuff will filter down eventually, um, I can see that adhering to that point of view, it hasn't worked. Um, and I don't know, you might know where it was. Um, there was footage, it's black and white footage, and there's a group of Aboriginal women and a group of, um, I think they were described as white feminists. Um, but there was some sort of meeting that was in Canberra, so black and white, I think it was the 70s. Um, but I, I don't know what they're talking about because there's always a voiceover. Sorry, I'll just have a drink. But what it seemed to me was there was this... How I, how I um, um, interpret it was there was this yearning on the faces of the black women because they could see, talking to white women, that there was... And I, I don't really like to use those expressions anymore, but they could tell by talking to this other group that um, women's rights were important because that's not a thing that was we generally talk about in the Aboriginal community. We talk about community, family, um, warriors. You know, there's all of these kind of tropes that are sort of exist in our world. But women... Um, I mean, it's just in recent times that people have started to run campaigns around women. But... Um, as far as I can see it, it's always yeah, secondary. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I could just say something there. I mean, in the very early days of the women's movement, say like in the early 70s, um, there were um, Aboriginal women um, and other women of colour were definitely involved. And I know there's a bit of mythology around now that it was all just, you know, white women and nobody else. That's not true. Yeah. And, I mean, certainly uh, Marcy Langton was always involved. Bobby Sykes, you know, the late Bobby Sykes yeah, was Roberta Sykes, very yeah. involved. Mm-hmm. Um, Sakai Holland who, you know, the Rhodesian woman or Zimbabwean oh. woman who then went back to Zimbabwe and, you know, became a minister in the, in the Mugabe government back before it, you know, turned into the you know, horrifying regime that it became. Um, and that's just... And there, there are many others, like Mum Shaw was also involved. I mean, there, there are many other women. And the, we used to have meetings... I don't know the particular footage that you're referring to, but then I didn't live in Canberra. Hmm. But there were certainly in all the early uh, big meetings that we had... There were always voices from women of colour, and you know, the, and although I mean, when my book *Damned Whores and Gods* police came out, I was criticised because it didn't, you know, it wasn't inclusive enough of Aboriginal women, and and I that, and I agree that was a, a fault, but it wasn't because I wasn't conscious, but because we didn't have the the dialogue, we didn't have the the ways of talking about it that we have, you know tried to develop over the years. But nevertheless, I think there was more um, connection and more integration and more mutual interest and acceptance than there has been for a long time since. And it's a shame that we lost that. Absolutely. I can see, I mean, because there was the 70s, I was conscious of this. Um, And then 80s, 90s, um, like a lot of black women, um, when the university started extending mature age education and created enclaves at universities for black people, we all in droves went to university. And there was this um, idea that if, um, it was still dragging on in the 90s, that if you chose to be educated, then it was like you were agreeing to assimilation. And there was all of this kind of criticism that came down on on women and there were men at university as well but um, this idea was that you know we shouldn't be getting educated but by the 90s certainly we were um, we were a lot more 
the thing about education is it gives you access to other ideas and we just weren't interested. It was almost comical. Um, but you could also hear vestiges of what people have been saying for decades. You know, we're all about the same age, mm-hmm. us women. And now I can see, um, you know, we still there are still pockets of that kind of holding people back um, simply because not everyone has died who was around when... You know, these ideas formed and um, took hold. So, you know, I, I don't know the language around feminism because it just wasn't part of um, how we spoke about ourselves. But definitely I know what it's like to be, as a woman, to be, you know, held down. But if you talk to Larissa, for example, Larissa Berent, I mean, she, um, a couple of years ago, I think it was about two years ago now, we had a conference actually at UTS mm-hmm. to mark the 40th anniversary of the of Dan Tools and God's Police. And it was not a, a conference about me. It was a conference about the book and the ideas and its legacy and its relevance for today. And Larissa gave one of the keynote addresses and it was an absolutely brilliant address, which I can find. I mean, I've got it somewhere in my computer. Um, but she talked about the impact of that book on her as a young Aboriginal woman. Mm. And, and contrary to the view that this was this terrible white racist book, which... You know, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but but people were very critical of it from that point of view. Larissa had a completely different take on it, and mm. that was it. Said it, it, it. She, I can't remember her exact words, so I don't want to misquote her. But I mean, she certainly um, learned. She took things from the book about the way in which Aboriginal women have been treated in the uh, frontier days, the colonial days. That she thought, thought the analysis that I brought to that told her things that were very valuable to her. And that she thought that she certainly could identify with contemporary feminism of the early 70s, even though she was quite young then. I think she was just a kid. But um, I just think her perspective is one that challenges this narrative that we've sort of had over the last few years. And I think that that definitely touches on something that we were talking about earlier around allowing diversity within marginalised communities and allowing for a multitude of opinions instead of kind of having the one approved voice that we all have to kind of adhere to. I could listen to this discussion forever, but I am conscious of the time. So I wondered if anyone in the audience had a question at this point. Um, Two questions. Uh, The first one's for Siv. Uh, You mentioned that um, I think 70% of Aboriginal people are no longer with Aboriginal partners. Is that a... Why is that? And is that an issue in... Like, is that a very troubling issue within the Aboriginal community. And um, I'll just let you ruminate over that while I um, ask the second question, and this is for Anne. Um, I really liked what you said about your aunt, and I noticed in the past maybe 12 months of like me intensely reading a lot of feminist women writers that they've often mentioned aunts, aunts and the impact they've had. And I wonder if it's necessarily like because the aunts and the female writers um, haven't had children and I wonder if it's necessarily the fact that they haven't had children that they've been able to make this other narrative of, like, you know, a modelling another way of living and if that's, you know, like something that we should celebrate more or I don't know. Um, well, just in answer, thank you for the question. Um, I mean, the, that stat, it's, it's around somewhere. I don't know the exact number, but it's quite clear from my own observations that that's, that's what's happening. Um, some of it is because we've moved from being sort of small Aboriginal communities and people have moved into other areas um, and, you know, you just meet someone and we're not necessarily looking for someone who's Aboriginal. Um, I think, you know, part of the Aboriginal community, and in some ways this is one of the reasons why we've probably suffered unduly is um, 
we we accept anybody. Um, so and also this also extends to if you have a relationship with someone who's out of out of the group, um, it's not particularly taboo. I don't think you know because it's just uh, because it's so common. I guess now I, I'm interested in why why has that happened now because of not just the violence between you know gendered violence, but um, one of the things about having intergenerational trauma is that there there is a lot of other kinds of violence um, that's in the community. They call it lateral violence. It's just you know some it's you know, and some of the controls, it's actually not coming from older people, it's from younger people. So, and, you know, of course, if, you've, if you're sort of like third, fourth, fifth generation where you've had like all of these things have happened and it hasn't been dealt with properly, then this is where it's coming out. It's in the younger generation. So in some cases, people would leave a community because they don't, it, you know, it's very uncomfortable to be, to be around families who aren't coping. To put it quite bluntly, um, you know, I I've um, I chose to move to Burke um, in 2000 when it was described as the most dangerous town in Australia, and I thought, what does that look like? Because that wasn't where I came from, so I moved out there, and I thought, I bet it's because of the Aboriginal people. They're not saying it's the most most dangerous town because of the black people, but I suspected it had something to do with that, and it was. It was the crime mainly. Um, you know, a lot of robbery, arson, um, sexual assault, lots of assault, lots of, um, you know, intimidation. Um, it has a, um, a population where, you know, mainly young people, children, a uh, few teenagers, a few older people, people get out if they can. Um, very, you know, poverty, illness, all the rest of it. That's the kind of community that you would leave if you could. And uh, one of the good things is because I somehow got talked into doing youth work. I didn't move out there to do youth work. I was offered a job running um, a crisis centre working with the family. families. And when they said with the kids, I said, oh, no, I don't like the kids here. Um, and I wasn't joking because I said, they've already broken into my house six times. Um, and you sort of, again, you normalise things like um, you have two dogs. And sorry for anyone who's a dog lover, but the reason why you have two is if you have one they can kill your dog. If you have two, they're looking for the other one. So you get two... So, yeah, I mean, I had ferocious dogs. They were lovely, never bit me, but the... the <laughs> The thing is, is like you have all of you, without realising I was only there for three years, but you start to live a particular way, um, you know, and things that you see which would horrify me now to even think about it or write about it would just became normal. But I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, for our own, for your children, and, event, and I think it is women, it's primarily women, you want a better life for your children. And this is what we were saying when we were at university, having access to feminist works, um, you know, very few of them were written by black women, unless they're American, but this idea that women had, you know, were entitled to think about their lives. And so for us, it was a very clear decision when you had, you know, like the blokes from the music centre or something saying, oh, education's white, you know. And we said, no, well, we're entitled to look after our children. So, you know... And yourself. Yes, and yourself. And this is the thing is it always seemed to be like we had to have a reason why we're entitled to what is actually quite, you know, it's a human right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a long answer. That's, I can't wait to read your book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up and finish it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, aunts. Well, I had, um, I think, quite a few aunts. And as I said, one, you know, one, two of them were housewives and one was a nun and the other one was the interesting one. And <laughs> not being mean to mothers, but, but um, 
you know, I, I, as as the oldest of six children, and you know, I, I was fourteen when the youngest was born, so I did a lot of nappy changing and all that stuff, and it didn't really strike me as what what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So, so I was really grateful to my auntie Nance, who was the one. She was, you know, she just worked in a bank. She was a bank teller in in a country town in New South Wales. It probably was quite a low level job, but for me, she was the most glamorous person I'd ever met. Because she had money, she was independent. She took me to a nice restaurant in, in Melbourne, a Florentino's, which was incredibly glamorous um, and sophisticated for, for me. And uh, it, it just made me realise that there were other opportunities. Now, I'm an aunt. I have a lot of nephews and nieces. And, um, you know, I think some of them regard me as quite an exotic creature. But I'm in touch with most of them and I do my best to encourage them and in what, whatever they want to do. But I agree. I think um, the role of aunts is something that ought to be more, sort of more celebrated and, and appreciated, and particularly if the aunts are, you know, Auntie Mame is a great role model, I think, if anyone, you know that film. <laughs> um, but but we, we do have a... We, we not being... Those, aunt, those of us who are aunts who aren't married with children but who have other lives um, can perhaps be a little bit of a guiding light for young women who are looking for a different path as well. I love that. My one ambition is to be the cool auntie to my four nieces and one nephew. And I did have a great moment where my oldest niece, who's nine, came to my house and, you know, I live in an apartment unmarried to my white partner and I have a cat. And apparently she went home and said, all I want is to live in an apartment with a cat. Um, she didn't say anything about the unmarried partner, but I think she's a bit young for that. Yeah. I, was, I was just going to say I was nodding along furiously because, you know, I'm like, this, this, is, this is the auntie I want to be too. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We should start some kind of club. I like it. Feminist aunts. Um, any other questions? Um, for Zoya. Um, for someone who is writing as, like, a young feminist, um, you must be often, like, stigmatised with that sort of, you're not teenage, but, like, that sort of young teenage or young female angst. Do you often find that you're disregarded or, like, um, undermined in, like, what you're trying to say just because you are young and you haven't had that experience? Yeah, totally. Um, I... I also look younger than I am. My favourite story to tell people is how I was in Scotland last year and um, I was in this house by myself and some Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on the door and when I answered it, they asked me if my parents were home. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'm 28, but thank you. Um, so yes, I do get that a lot. And something that I wanted to bring up on the panel was actually how when you write from personal experience as well and you're young um, and you're a woman, people tend to really fixate on the personal drama aspect of your work. And my book is really entirely about cultural context and a political analysis of why we have gender and racial inequality um, and the ways in which that affects your life when you're growing up as a migrant in Australia. And I'm always surprised by how often journalists will ask me what my parents thought, what my partner thought, um, you know, what the personal fallout has been without interrogating the ideas in the book. And that's what I'm interested in talking about. So I do think you get stigmatised with that quite a bit. And I am also sick of being asked how I could possibly have something to write about when I'm so young. Oh, my God, yeah. You know, yep, because memoir is an too. autobiography. I'm a bit like, this isn't like the story of my life. Uh, it's actually about the issues and ideas that I find interesting and that challenge me. 
And I do think that writing in general is a conceit. You know, you're writing because you think you have something to say and you want people to engage with that and you have to live with that as a writer. It is kind of a, a condition, as you said before. What about all these 19-year-old footballers who write their autobiographies? <laughs> right? Well, that, I know. They don't actually yeah. write them, though. Someone well, writes no, no, them for write them. them but they... <laughs> I actually would love to be a ghostwriter. So, by the way, if anyone knows of a 19-year-old footballer who needs their autobiography <laughs> written, I would do that. But, yeah, I think There's especially... Good do that, apparently. would you? I've heard that. I have yeah, heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have several friends who are ghostwriters, so they do quite well. Oh, well, you know, if they know how to get into it. I've done a bit of it in my time, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Exactly. Mm. That. that was a bit of a Just tangent. Take the money. Don't worry about the glory. Another question up the back. Hi. Um, a question for the whole panel, but perhaps Anne might start. Um, I'm actually working on a memoir-style book at the moment that will be published next year about a very bad relationship that went wrong. And I'm struggling with the, the subject that we were talking about, you were talking about before, about permission, when, when it's okay to write about other people. Um, the person that I'm referring to throughout the book is not being named, but there'll be level of identification. And I guess it's something I'm, I'm doing it, but I'm grappling with it as I go. And I'd be really grateful for when does, when does someone forfeit the right to have... have to tell their own story. When can I? When is it okay for me to step in and do it? And well, that, that's a, that's a, a very very um, tough one. And and I didn't answer the question when Zoya asked me about it before. But she was talking more about well-known people and and how you deal with that. But when it's somebody you've had a relationship with, even if that person's not named, they're going to be known. They're going to know for a start, and your circle of friends will know. And that person can come forward and say and dispute your 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 version, uh, is there any way you can negotiate with the person in advance? No? Is the person going to take action, do you think? The, the defamation lawyers will be very interested in my manuscript, I right. think. Right, um, I yeah. mean, it's, it's hard because um, you're entitled to your story. He or she is entitled to theirs. And the balance between um, those two things is, is what you are striving to arrive at and your publishers will have to give you some advice on that. I mean, the def defamation laws in this country are very, very mm. tough and it makes it very hard to, to tell s certain types of stories. I think it's a big issue for me too, but that's another subject. Um, but I would, be, I would urge you to be careful. I mean, if it, if, it, if it ended badly and the other person is still very upset and angry, uh, they're not going to take it lightly if, if you write a book about it. So I would maybe find some way to... It's, it's a little complicated. There's personality disorders involved and yeah, well, psychopathy. Things. So, <laughs> Is it potentially dangerous? Yes, potentially. Well, you've got to take that very seriously, yes. I think. Very. Mm. Sorry, else? it's not advice. It's just I'm just um, regarding your safety. You have to be very careful. I think that's fantastic advice. Fiona, did you want to say anything about the permissions aspect? Because we kind of didn't touch on that with your experience at all. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, only to say that it's it's very hard. It's And I think it's different for each piece um, and for each writer. Different considerations come into account. And, and, and it's different for each book too. I was, at, um, you know, in my first book... Um, some of the experiences I wrote about were being in hospitals with, with other patients and I wanted to be very careful with those stories um, because, you know, another kind of preoccupation of anorexia is the way that you present in the world and, how, and what people think of you, kind of placing, having a, a really high, high value and, and, and worrying a lot about what people think of you. 
um, and the face that you show to the world. So trying to control that and, and shut it all down. So I, I thought it would be a violence um, to present someone else's face to the world from my perspective if that was something that they were already nervous about. Um, you know, in, in the second book there's less of that. Um, it's more sort of family and, and friends and things like that and I, I am quite happy to admit that I don't know how to negotiate that those ethics and I'm still figuring it out and I'm still making mistakes. Um, you know, and, and my approach is always just to try and have conversations with people but obviously when you can't have conversations with those people, what do you do? I yeah, think it's, it's about finding yeah. that balance both within yourself and I think, you know, taking the safety aspect into consideration of what you're willing to possibly lose and what you think the world can gain from a certain story. Like I wrote a whole other memoir um, years ago and then was like, yeah, I can't publish this until my parents die. So this book is the book that I can publish while they're alive. <laughs> um, somebody, in fact, on the radio yesterday, I was asked, you know, did you did you think that you had to wait until your family was dead, basically? And I was like, oh, there'll be other memoirs when they are dead. Like, I'm sure that'll happen. I'm waiting for that. But, but this one is for now. Because I do think you have to take very seriously the impact that it can have hmm. on your relationships. And it is a hard one to navigate. My family are like characters now. Yeah. My, my, mother, my mother said she wished I'd waited until she was dead. Yeah. But I, I, do, I do find this fascinating, though, right? Because there are a bunch of male writers who write very personally and I'm thinking of our, our friend Knausgaard here um, who don't give a damn yeah. and they're like, yeah, I'm going to blow up my life, don't care. Um, yeah. I am not that person and I've, I'm yet to meet a woman writer who is. Yeah, I do think women are judged yeah. very harshly for their supposed treatment of other people mm -hmm. and are expected to be responsible for that in a way that men aren't. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we have time for one more question. Yep. You were very quick with your hand there. Hi, everyone, and thank you for sharing your stories and talking about your work. I have a question about readers. There was um, a session here yesterday um, that unfortunately I couldn't be at about whether men read fiction. I want to ask about whether you think, and Anne is probably at the centre of this given that you're right in the middle of a book tour, about whether men read narrative non-fiction by women <laughs> because I think any – I'm a publisher and a writer and anybody who goes into a bookstore or looks at promotions around Father's Day um, will get a very particular view about what's being pushed to male readers mm -hmm. and the women who buy books for them. And let me tell you, it's not feminist non-fiction. I don't know. My book was on a recommended for Father's Day shelf and I had a little giggle thinking about the poor dad who got that book for Father's Day. Um, well, maybe I can start. Um, because, yes, I've had two weeks and I've got another two weeks to go. I'm travelling all around Australia doing lots and lots of events. And it is true that the majority of the audiences who come to see me are women. Um, but not exclusively, but, but, but mostly women. But can, I, can I point out we've got like one man in the audience yes. here? Oh, yeah. Hi. Hi, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, there, but there's but, one. But one, one thing that I've been quite struck by um, when I first arrived here is the number of men, um, and particularly some quite well-known men in, I probably shouldn't name them, but, but men in kind of big media positions at the ABC on a Monday night. Um, LAUGHTER 
<laughs> who, who have just like devoured the book and love it uh, because of the politics and they love all the stories about the early journalism and stuff and that's kind of been gratifying that they... they re- so they, if that's a way into the rest of the story, that's great, that's fine. But the other thing is I've discovered the number of Australian men, maybe of a certain uh, age, who are huge Joni Mitchell fans... <laughs> and so the at the time, so I've met meeting lots and lots of women who had no idea that the title refers to a Joni Mitchell song because they'd never. In fact, I was having my makeup done the other day at Channel Seven, and um, the, they said, "Do I watch your book about?" And I tried to explain to them, and you know, eyes glazed over. I said, <laughs> and I said the title you know, is from Joni Mitchell's song, and the two one woman was doing my hair, the other was doing my face because we had five minutes before I went on air, and the one who was doing my hair said, "Never heard of her," and the one doing my face said. Yes, I've heard of her because of that movie, Love Actually. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and, you know, you all know the story. Um, so a lot of it's generational, I think. But, the, but the, the men, I mean, I've had one man send me a playlist from my book tour of all these really obscure tributes to Joni Mitchell, <laughs> Herbie Hancock and all sorts of other singers who've done amazing Joni Mitchell tributes. Um, so I think that's great. So I'm going to mark up my book now, that, you know, the feminist memoir that even men like. Which, do you know, that's, it's funny because the, the response I get, I know that most of my readers are women and I love that actually. Um, you know, I'm, I think I'm writing for women and great, you know, but, I, but when I do encounter male readers, often they say, oh, I wasn't expecting to like your book, but I did. Yeah. As if that's some huge, like, <laughs> I'm like, thanks, you know. Um, yeah, I would love, like, I would just really like one man in particular to read my book mostly for book sales. I reckon if Andrew Bolt could get, like, really angry about it on Sky. <laughs> I've been waiting for that. I don't know I'm if sure I should ask someone to send it. We're going to be around. Yeah, I'm considering sending a copy anonymously um, just to get that going, but that's my marketing brain. What about you, Siv? Do you feel as if your work will be consumed equally by both genders? Um, I mean, it's certainly something I thought about when I was framing how I was going to write it, like with the, who is the audience. Um, and I guess, I mean, you don't know, I, st- I still don't really quite know how people are going to yeah. um, engage with my work. And just as a little story, I, um, I wrote this other series um, and um, it was, um, there was a male character in it and it was just this sort of series that I did and I was approached um, by a fellow who runs a literary event and, he, and um, they were doing something for Valentine's Day and he said, could you do a reading of that story, I think it's fantastic, for Valentine's Day? And I said, it's not really a Valentine's story. Um, I mean, it's about this bloke who comes out of jail and it's his experiences when he's in jail and... Um, you know, you can, if you boil water and put honey in it and throw it on someone, their flesh will just come straight off. Oh, yeah, like yeah. so romantic. Yeah, anyway, so I did this reading. So Valentine's Day is the, commemorates martyrs as well. Maybe that's where he was coming from. But the thing is, I, 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 so there was all these other people and they got up and they told their little stories and they're all lovely. And then I thought, oh. And then I got up and told mine. It was complete silence. <laughs> and at the end, you know, you get that kind of bit scared clapping. Um, <laughs> but, but I said to my sister, I said, how come people don't like my work? Because my sister was then, she said, you scare people, love. <laughs> but he said, and that later he said, oh, that was great. And I said, I'm still not really sure why you asked me. He said, I thought it was beautiful. Well, he actually didn't say it in that voice. He said, I thought it was beautiful. 
But the thing about it is he just... There was something about the intimacy, the way I created this character and the inner world of this character yeah. that he really liked. Cause, and as someone said to me, someone I really admire, because he read it, and he said, Siv, have you been in jail? And I said... No, Bruce, I haven't been in jail. And he said, oh, well, I have, and you really get those bastards. Okay. I feel like... <laughs> I think there's two lessons from that. One is you never know who's going to read your book, and I think the second is that you shouldn't allow your sister to write the cover quote for your book. Oh, I thought the lesson was I know how to burn someone's flesh off now. Yeah. <laughs> if there's one thing you take from the Feminist Writers Festival... Yes. <laughs> Um, that's a beautiful note to end on, isn't it? Uh, thank you all so much for coming along. Big thanks to UTS for hosting us. Please join me in thanking Zoe Patel, Siv Parker, Fiona Wright and Anne Summers. If you enjoyed this presentation of Rights for Festivals, please jump onto the Rights for Women website, www.rightsforwomen.com, to see what else we have on offer. There's Mudgee, there's the National Young Writers Festival, we have Scone coming up, so jump on onto our website and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting writing festivals. They're a really important part of our writing, reading and living community.